This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate all the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture. We have an amazing guest with us this week, Annika Hearn-Roth-Rothstein, a journalist who's been kidnapped in more countries than I've even traveled to total, and we're going to talk to her about daring to be different. So we're going to start talking today about the book of Exodus, which tells the story of how the Israelites became enslaved in Egypt and eventually, under the leadership of Moses, were rescued by God. And it's the most famous story in the history of the West and possibly in the history of world literature, period. I mean, just think about the incredibly juicy parts of the story. There's the prestige political drama of Moses versus Pharaoh. There's the supernatural thriller of the Ten Plagues. There's an epic chase scene when the Egyptians pursue the fleeing Israelites on their way out of Egypt. And there's even a crazy CGI action sequence when God splits the Red Sea. But there is one piece of the story that people tend not to focus on, and that's the everyday life of the Jews in Egypt you know, before all the fancy action starts. Now, you might think, well, that's because it's not the most gripping or exciting part of the narrative. I mean, it's just a bunch of Jews working day and night, right? So what's so interesting about that? But actually, there are a ton of really ancient Jewish traditions, hundreds, if not thousands of years old, that basically argue that the everyday life of the Israelites was, in fact, the most important part of the Exodus story. So just to give you an example, you have all these really old traditions that all have some version of the following claim. You know why God rescued the Israelites from Egypt? You know why he performed all those miracles for them? Well, it was because of how they lived their everyday lives for hundreds of years in Egypt. And specifically, the Israelites actually insisted on living a little bit differently than everyone else around them. So according to some sources, they kept their own distinct names, According to other sources, they kept their own distinct clothing and method of dress. According to still others, they continued to speak their own language, ancient Hebrew, rather than speaking Egyptian. But whatever the case may be, this tradition basically says, want to know why God rescued the Jews? Because long before Moses came along and confronted Pharaoh, the Jews were willing to be different. They were willing to go against the grain of society and in so doing, build a culture worth saving and preserving. And it was that willingness to live a little bit differently that God truly valued and that we in turn should value. I mean, especially today in our age of cultural conformity and sometimes what with social media mobs enforced conformity, it's more important than ever for us to learn from ways of living that might be a little or maybe a lot different than our own. We shouldn't assume that all the world's in Egypt. If we look hard enough, we'll see Israelites all around us, maybe some people who speak or live differently and who can show us that we don't merely have to accept the world as it is, but we can, with enough creativity, turn it into the world that it ought to be. So in order to help us do that kind of thinking, to help us consider ways of thinking and living very different from our own, I brought on maybe one of the coolest people you'll ever hear on this podcast or any podcast, a reporter who's written some incredible stories for the Wall Street Journal, the Jerusalem Post, Tablet Magazine, Fox News, the Washington Examiner, and much more, and an author who has quite literally traveled the world, sometimes forcing her way into war zones in order to chronicle different ways of life that we might never have considered. So I'm really excited 
excited to introduce my guest, the journalist, Annika Hernroth-Rothstein. Annika, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. I'm excited to be here. So let's rock and roll. So listen, you know, Annika, you have this amazing book out this year. It's called Exile, Portraits of the Jewish Diaspora, which I totally devoured over the weekend. And just to give you guys context, my wife and I actually just had a baby right before the weekend. So I was out of my mind delirious and I still devoured the book. That's how good it was where you visit Jewish communities in all these places that your average person doesn't typically associate with vibrant Jewish life, or any Jewish life at all, for that matter, Tunisia, Finland, Turkey, Venezuela. And you tell these absolutely gripping stories about their history, their traditions, and all the different ways they live and think. And for me, I mean, I think this book is essential reading for any American who looks at our culture today and is dissatisfied with it or feels that it's morally wanting or morally empty. And they want to think about other ways of finding meaning and purpose in their lives, because that's one of the ways the West has always learned from the Jews, right? We show people something that feels familiar. It's grounded in the Bible and its values, but that's also completely different in wonderful ways. So I really think everyone who's concerned about where American culture is going should be reading your book about different Jewish communities across the globe. And so my first question to you is, if you're an American, Right. So hopefully you've met a Jew before, although that's maybe not true for many. Uh, But maybe, you know, something about Judaism, even if it's just from watching TV or movies. But all you know is the American Jewish community and maybe a bit about Israel from what you read online or in the papers. And you, Annika, had to pick one Jewish community from somewhere across the world to tell Americans about. So which one would it be? Wow. Oh, it's so hard to choose. You could um, choose as many as you want. <laughs> <laughs> I choose all of them. Um, well, I would say there are a couple that spring to mind immediately. The first is Iran, which is a Jewish community that I spent significant time in in 2017. It was right after sort of the inking of the Iran deal and, and things were you know, well, it's always weird times in Iran, isn't it? But right. specifically weird times. And I think there's an interesting lesson there for Jews and non-Jews alike. I mean, I I can tell you what the the biggest lesson that I took from it was. It was not only that wherever you go, even in the most isolated parts of the Jewish world, and Iran is a very isolated part of the Jewish world, meaning isolated from other Jews, but you, you are family. And because of the keeping of the traditions, because of of faith and history and adherence to tradition, we remain family and we understand each other no matter where we go or how far apart we are. But also it's an incredibly important lesson in what, for us who have never known a world where Israel doesn't exist, it's, it was my only chance, thank God, to, to understand what it is to live like a Jew without the existence of Israel. And I think it would explain to a non-Jew and to, you know, an American non-Jew or to any non-Jew around the world who questions or fails to understand why we need that closeness to Israel, why we feel about Israel the way we do, is to see the type of life you have to lead as a Jew when Israel doesn't have your back, when you don't have, you know, I always refer to Israel as my life raft. And I say it flippantly, but I don't mean it flippantly in any way. But it's the reason that I have the kind of backbone that I have living in Europe as a European Jew and being extremely outspoken and being very openly and brazenly Jewish, because I do know always in the back of my mind 
that if something happens, then I have my paperwork, you know, I have what I need and I can get on a plane and they will take me, they will fight for me as they fight for me already when I'm in exile. And it's an incredibly important lesson to understand because once you, you know, read my story or other stories about what it's like to live as a Jew in Iran, you understand that it's, it's, a, it's maybe a gilded cage in some ways, but it's still a cage and you're so subservient. It's unlike any other place I visited. I was going to say there's something like decadent almost about like American public discourse about Zionism as if it's sort of like a fad that you can adopt or discard at will and with no thought given to how essential it is to the kind of DNA of Jewish living in America or elsewhere. Right. It's like describing romantic love in the sense, you know, I described Israel at some point, you know, as a really difficult romantic relationship. You know, the great <laughs> passion of your life, you know, we've all had one, at least one, where you, no matter what they do to you, no matter how frustrated you are, no matter how many times you fight and break up, you get back together because they're part of you, who you are, and there's so much passion and it's really difficult to explain to somebody, you know, it's like explain to somebody who doesn't know what romantic love is. For me, that's what it is to explain Zionism to a person who doesn't truly understand what it is and who has never lived with the need for Zionism, who doesn't understand that for that, that's a very real possibility for many of us around the world that we will have to collect our paperwork and flee. It's not only the idea of, oh, one day I will take my family and in a lovely way, get on a plane and make Aliyah. But there are many of us around the world for which it's a really real possibility that we will have to leave because the option is unbearable. But on a lighter note, the other example I would give to understand tradition and to understand what you just spoke of and how tradition keeps you when you keep tradition is the island of Jerba, the island of the Kohanim. That was really one of my favorite <laughs> chapters in your book. It's so oh, and good. It's one of my favorite places in the entire world. Like it was, it was the most difficult place to leave. You know, I usually say I'm very religious and somewhat observant, but it was the one time when I was like, do I want to <laughs> become super Orthodox and just live here? <laughs> because it was like nothing else I had ever seen. If you weren't going to mention it, I would have raised it. And I just want to give people some background because Jerba is known to many, certainly many in the Jewish community, as the island of the Kohanim, which is the ancient Hebrew word for priests. So can you tell us a bit about this community? What does that name come from? What's it like? What did you see there? Well, so it, it is said that after the destruction of the Second Temple, the Kohanim fled and ended up in Jerba, in this island outside of Tunisia, that is part of Tunisia. And it's a tiny little place. It literally has two towns that are door to door. And one of them is the Jewish town. And the other is, you know, the Muslim town in which all the Jews work with, you know, their jewelry business. <laughs> Most of them. It sounds like home. a sit. It sounds like the setup for a sitcom, you know, <laughs> the weirdest, best sitcom you ever saw. <laughs> and it's this, you know, usually when I use the word shtetl, I use it in a very negative sense or there are negative connotations to it. But I literally, and I use this not in the modern sense when it's not literally at all, but literally, literally. <laughs> when I walked into Haragbira, this this Jewish town in, in Jerba, and I saw, I don't know, 10, 15 little boys in black kippot, like 
playing soccer in the street and I saw visibly Jewish families walking around in this compound. I mean, it's a big compound, but still I cried because it's so, it was so bizarre and beautiful at the same time because there were so many aspects or so many visuals there that I didn't expect to see. You see a North African town. It looks very North African. You see, you know, Jews of color. Um, you see openly proud Jews in a very Muslim context, living perfectly safe in a shtetl. And they are religious, religious. I mean, they are traditional in ways. As in like when I wanted to go to shul, there was no women's section. I, again, literally sat in like a closet. In another room, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was a closet because they didn't have a room. Cause I said, you know- Harry Potter always, style. <laughs> yes. Cause I make a point of course, because I wanna, I wanna go to services, hopefully every day if I can, wherever I am. And, and I was there for Hanukkah. And I said, I, I wanna go to services. And they kind of looked at me and the very nice men, or I mean, they're my age, but I, they, they were like boys to me, at least like the, this gang of brothers. <laughs> they said, okay, we'll take you, but we can't walk with you. You understand that, right? Cause it was so <laughs> inappropriate for them. To, and it didn't even cross my mind. So they had to describe in French and my French is a bit rusty and they speak, you know, sort of an Arabic French. So we spoke French to each other cause my Hebrew is so bad. And they had to explain the ways because I had to be two minutes behind them so that we weren't walking in the street together. Because <laughs> they couldn't be seen with you. It was so improper. So I shared, you know, in the beginning, I just went there, you know, every day. And then I became friends with his family and ended up living with the family. And the women had the, the lower section of the house and the men had the top section of the house. <laughs> so I lived with all the sisters and I just fell in love with it because it's a very small community you know, of not even 2000 people, but it is the purest, strongest, most, you know, it, it, and it surprised me in so many ways when we spoke about Israel, which they have a really strong connection to, and, you know, they go to Israel, go back and forth. We spoke about Aliyah, you know, one of the men said, well, we're a little concerned about making Aliyah because we're afraid that our children will become secular. Wow. Because to them, Israel had now become, there are too many choices in Israel. You can live in Tel Aviv, <laughs> you can. Right, exactly. You know, so it wasn't, and here they know, you know, they you know what they're clubbing, getting. Jew style, you know. Exactly. So, right. you know, they're, and they said that it's a great concern for them that, you know, they, and they prefer their life in chosen confinement in a way. Not to say that there isn't, you know, a lot of issues having to do with that, of course, but it was so beautiful and so inspiring to see this expression that I felt like I sort of had traveled back in time and seen not only a very ancient, but a very real side of Judaism that I hadn't encountered before. And I also loved that I didn't feel like they needed me. You know, right. they weren't that impressed with what right. like the tall girl with the American accent had to say about <laughs> what, things or What could you whatever. tell them, right? <laughs> right, because they knew everything. And they were like, I kind of loved how they sort of scoffed at me and how, you know, I didn't start my day praying and I didn't pray all the day through. And it was, they were like, Oh, modern lady, huh? You know, and <laughs> it was just, it, to me, it was amazing. And the closeness that I felt and the connection that I felt and hearing them bench, for example, right. The grace after meals, right. And hearing that in Arabic melody in the most, you know, I could see, 
I'm so used to also, it's, it's sort of a European Jewish disease that I'm so used to instinctively feeling that certain connections and meetings are negative. So for me, Arabic is not something that I associate with Judaism. It's something that I almost instinctively am scared of. I mean, before that, it was something that I had a very negative attitude toward, but I saw that there was a meeting happening there and that the bleeding wasn't just one way. It's always Islam that bleeds into Judah, it's never the other way around. But here I saw they lived, you know, like strangers and neighbors, right? That they had understood something so important that I understood while I was there that, okay, for me to be able to, good fences make good neighbors, right? So for me to be able to live side by side with other people of faith, I have to have this distance. And it was one of the things that I was a little bit concerned when I wrote in the book, because it was, for me, it became an absolute fact after visiting all these places. But to state it so openly, to say, okay, we can't intermingle that much. Like, there has to be a here, but no, no farther, you know. I mean, so that that's where I was so fascinated, because to be honest with you, as I was reading your description of your time in Jerba, so what came to mind to me was Rod Dreher. Rod Dreher is an American Christian who wrote this really important book in 2017 called The Benedict Option, mm-hmm. where he basically says Christians, and the same goes for other traditional communities in America, have a choice. You can continue to live in an American culture that's increasingly inhospitable to traditional values, or you can choose to step away from the culture and form your own communities rooted in those traditional values. And Dreher, who's this mainstream American Christian thinker, writes for all the mainstream publications, he advocates for stepping away. Right. And the question is, right, what would a community like this look like in practice? And I think... You know, a lot of the response to Dreyer has been like, what would this look like outside of like a very, very small like Rotary Association model? Like what would you, what would it look like if you actually did it for real? So then I start thinking about, you know, this Jewish city that you describe, Harakabira and Jerba, which yeah. you basically describe exactly this way as choosing isolation in order to protect their observance and their traditions. And you say at the end of that chapter, the strategy is working. Right. So, yeah. you know, if you're an American thinking about the Benedict option. Yeah. So on the one hand, you see that it can work. On the other hand, it comes with trade-offs. Right. So how do you think about that? Well, for me, I'm also in a way living that option, you know, in a, in a sense. So I've, I've had some ample opportunity to think about it. In Jerba, they live side by side with another very, very religious community. I live in the midst of what is the second most secular country in the entire world, which to me is secularism, when it goes to that extent, is also a religion. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult religion to live side by side with. And for me, it's not as noticeable, I think, in, in America or other places where people have a certain level of faith. But if you come into my house... And you're in Sweden. As a secular... And I'm in Sweden. And you come into my house as a secular Swede, there are giveaways, you know, where you can see, okay, I have separate sinks. Things are marked, you know, red and blue. I have mezuzot everywhere. I have, you know, there are things. I chose not to explain this. I don't want to live as an explainer or an excuser, as I felt like I was doing for a big part of my life. You're like, oh, sorry, I'm weird. I brought food or I can't eat. I don't do this. And so isolation became 
not isolation, but from the secular Sweden, I would say, because my friends are Jews. Right. <laughs> you know, the people I socialize with are Jews because it just, it's not only easier, but it's, you don't feel good in your heart and soul. It takes something from you when you apologize. Even if you do it just offhand, like you do, like a Swedish person does all the, like, oh, sorry, I'm so difficult. You know, you, I would say stuff like, I know I'm a little bit difficult, but I don't eat this. I don't do that. Or when people will talk about Christmas or do the, this or that, oh, sorry, I don't sell it. You know, you do the thing. Oh, and, I hate and, having to do that about like keeping kosher, you know, like it's the worst. Right. And I didn't realize it when I was younger, but I see it now in hindsight that it takes something from you that... Every time, like every isolated time is not huge, but it does something to you and your mindset in the long run. So I just chose to live a different way. And it doesn't mean necessarily being in your face about it, but I'm, I mean being unapologetic about it. I went and bought myself Shabbat flowers on Thursday and the guy says, oh, have you done all your Christmas shopping? And I kind of then joyously say, well, I don't celebrate Christmas. So everything I buy is for myself, you know, and it's a, and he asks why, and it becomes this like interesting and you see all over his face that he's never seen a Jew before, as far as he knows. And he's like right, fascinated right. with it and asks all these things. And I think that the isolation, it works because it's a necessity. I think that we should view it less as a choice, but more as a necessity because in the conclusion part of my book, I kind of make a list of, you know, the things that I deem important or, you know, the reasons why I think that some of these communities are doing well and why some are doing less well. And I say that, well, religion begets religion. So it does help. Like, take again, Jerba as an example, that they are living next to pretty hardcore Muslims and they are strangers and neighbors in the sense that they go into the Muslim town and they work and then they go right back home. And all the Muslim, you know, shopkeepers know when the Jews close their doors for prayers and then the Muslim close their doors for prayers. <laughs> they don't intermingle, but they're also not enemies in the sense like it helps because there is a religion helps everybody is, is my general takeaway that it helps because you need the foundation of any society. You need the walls of that house in order to keep the family intact. You need, you know, and family in the greater sense as society, all of these things. And secondary, we need the tradition, you know, the debate that we've had in Europe or are constantly having with Jewish culture versus Jewish religion. And this kind of like, let's, if we can just do a little klezmer and a little Yiddish and we'll be fine, like we don't have to be so in your face with the, with the milk and the meat and the kippot and all the things. That, exactly. You know, it's like religion, klezmer. but like inoffensive religion, you know. <laughs> right. Like t-shirt <laughs> style religion. But what you find is that the things that you <laughs> that's great <laughs> that what, what you remember what what you actually remember and i can speak from experience as a as a child of, of assimilation that the small things that remain that there are remnants of faith that are passed down and not necessarily remembered as faith but then I, I had to relearn, okay, this is faith and this is that. And, you know, I, I grew up as a child have, knowing Yiddish words and going to school and saying them, not knowing they were Yiddish and thinking that I was weird because none of my teacher understood when I said that I won't say them because I, most of them are bad words. So I don't think I should say <laughs> them to a rabbi, but, <laughs> but either way, but there were, you know, remnants of tradition 
of hand washing of these, you know, traditional things that had been handed down through generation, but not knowingly, you know, as religion. And then you have to, but you need those remnants to then pick it back up. That music is not enough. To me, like that idea of of tradition and religion, quite frankly, as a source of incredible goodness, togetherness, belonging. I mean, and this is where, by the way, you know, I, I want to come back to actually the last community that you survey in your book, which is Venezuela. And that chapter mm-hmm. is, I mean, if you read one chapter in the book, I think I would <laughs> recommend Jerba in that one. You know, I, I, wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't have to choose. It's like Sophie's Choice. <laughs> but in America right now, you know, we're dealing with, I think, a series of crises, but they're all related. There's a loneliness crisis. Americans, even before COVID, right? Cigna has this whole study out about how just loneliness is skyrocketing among Americans. And COVID has only made this worse. Yeah. Suicide is on the rise. I mean, imagine not. And amongst young people, it's on the rise. There are drug epidemics and opioid epidemics and all these things, I think, are related to sort of a sense of malaise and displacement. And I think your average American, you know, you ask a person, really be honest with yourself. If your car broke down on the side of the road right now and let's take your parents out of the equation, but it may even apply to them as well. How many people do you have in your life, really, truly, who would drop everything and come to the side of the road and help you right now like right now no questions asked and i think the answer for most americans is like if you're lucky it's two people maybe one people and maybe nobody and in your chapter on venezuela so first i'd love for you to talk a little bit about what it was like to get into venezuela and when you got in but you know you come in at this time when the country is like tearing itself apart yeah and one of the things that you talk about is this unbelievably moving way in which you kind of get dropped into a community and simply by virtue of the fact that you belong to a people, you have all sorts of folks you've never met in your life who drop everything, in some cases, like probably are risking their lives to just help you do basic things. And it seems to me that that sense of of community of belonging is is so absent from a contemporary America where the highest good is to find yourself, right? Develop right. yourself as an individual, be the best you can be, not need anybody else. And so can you talk a little bit about it, what what it was like to go to Venezuela when you went and and what that community is like and how it played out in your time there? Well, I'm actually writing a whole separate book on Venezuela now because it was such a, you know, Amazing. A momentous <laughs> time in, in my life. But as you say, we'll, I, I will pre-order. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So I arrived right after Juan Guaido announced as president and thus, you know, threatening the despotic reign of Nicolas Maduro. And like you said, it was not only turmoil in the country, but I would say it was been a simmering fire. Well, since the mid to late 90s, but now it was like bushfire spreading across the country. And it also opened the world's eyes, I think, and at least my eyes to the absolute horrors of what that country is. You know, the first thing I do wherever I go, I mean, I went to report on a political crisis, of course, but the first thing I do, no matter where I go, is I go to shul. And in the case of Venezuela, it's a little different because you have a Jewish compound because, of course, you know, there's something called the Caracas Kidnap Express. (laughs) It's known as that. Like one of the Jewish kids I spoke to had been kidnapped four times. And it's when they just take somebody, you know, they'll follow you everywhere. Nobody has a dime to their name, you know, the... 
the monthly income is $6 if you're lucky and you can't buy anything with that. So what are you gonna do? Like people are actively starving to death every single day in that country. And that's not mentioning, you know, the narco wars and the gang wars and everything else that is running rampant in that country. So I went to the Jewish compound and of course there's a Chabad, right? Because- Right, exactly. (laughs) Those guys are everywhere. (laughs) They're everywhere. But the fascinating thing was, it was the country where I chose to stop going to shul because it was became dangerous for them to have a journalist come to synagogue and i didn't want to expose them to that so instead i met i made jewish friends throughout the community but i would meet them in a cafe i would meet them at their house because knowing anybody who can tell the story of their country to the outside world is a liability but there was one moment in particular that it tells you everything you have to know or need to know about what it is to be a jew and be part of the Jewish family. And this was four months in maybe, I was supposed to stay for three weeks, I stayed for six months, as so often is the case in in my life. And I had been deported once, kidnapped twice. And and that's just a Wednesday for you. (laughs) That was a Wednesday. And so the fourth time I came back, I snuck in illegally over the Colombian border, the bridge, uh, Simon Boulevard Bridge that that goes between Colombia and Venezuela, and actually a rabbi, the Cucuta rabbi, helped me sneak across the bridge. So he was the one we, that walked we rabbis me to have the many different skills, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. You're basically superheroes. And he was, you know, he couldn't walk with me to the bridge, but he dropped me off. He blessed me, and he, you know, he prayed with me, and and then he sent me with my little rolly bag across the bridge. And I got into a lot of trouble that time as well, after I'd been there for about two weeks, having snuck in illegally. And I found out that there was a warrant for my arrest issued by the Sabine, which are, you know, the intelligence service. And it's not any intelligence service. The Sabine are the type of place where I won't get too graphic, but let's say you're put in a hole and if you're not dead, you'll wish you were. It's that type of intelligence service. I've met people that have been, you know, locked up in the Sabine for a couple of years. And it's like looking at a dead body, you know, like a walking dead body. They take everything. Like it's torture. They've been torture trained by the Russians and the Cubans. So, so they know a great deal about torture. So anyway, so I, um, I had a fixer, which, and he's, you know, one of the great heroes of my life. And he, um, thanks to his intelligence, I found out that the, when the warrant had been issued and I fled the hotel I was into what I like to refer as a hooker hotel where you don't have to, where you can say you, you know, <laughs> dropped your passport and you can slip somebody five bucks and you, you can be there under the radar. And I had to lose my SIM card and I, I had my WhatsApp. I didn't know, like, you can't trust anybody because a few weeks before I had been kidnapped by my, my bodyguard for ransom so <laughs> who can you try and i had known that guy for five months like who, who you had trust? one job <laughs> you had one job exactly uh and and so what happened was i i texted someone from the jewish community someone you know i didn't know him that well we went to shul together like i knew him like someone you've gone to shul with a few times right you guys went to synagogue I, together yeah and so I text him and I tell him the truth, which is something, honesty is a childhood disease in Venezuela. <laughs> I can tell you that, but it's, it's, um, but I, I told him the truth and I trusted him because we're family. And I told him the hotel I was at, which is, you know, 
an extremely risky thing to do considering what I was facing. And he showed up with three like Tupperware cartons of kosher food and $400 and said, I know like my brother has a plane. What do you need? Can we do something? And what you had to understand is not only did I not know this man, but he has to stay there. If someone had found out anybody, they would give him up in a second for a meal, you know? And he risked that because we're family. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. All we knew is that we're family. You know, we pray the same times. We eat the same things. We share the same history. And it was such an important story to put in the book because most people don't get what that does to you. Like, you know, before I wrote the book, I was somewhat cynical. I'm a European Jew. It's not the easiest, but I've (laughs) never been more hopeful about you know, the Jewish people than I am now after having written the book, because everywhere you go in the Jewish world, you have family you haven't met yet. And we understand each other. There's this Jewish shorthand that is safety. And I I understand what you mean, because I feel bad for all the people of this world that don't have that, because I'm never truly alone. I mean, I can feel lonely, but I'm never alone because I know not only if my car, if I'm hungry, I got 15 people on standby. Like, oh my God. <laughs> and wherever I go in this world, literally wherever I go, and I've been a lot of places, you know, I have Jewish family in Uzbekistan. You know, there are mountain Jews that can't wait to serve me another soup with 18 eggs that are unexplicably <laughs> there, you know. Soup can never yeah. have too many eggs, right? Clearly, or vodka, as I learned. <laughs> um, so it gave me so much hope and it makes you, you know, I feel so sad for the, the non-Jewish world in the sense, or maybe the secular world rather. I was going to say the secular world. I mean, like if you're and and, and, and this is so powerful. So I think we can end with this. Like if you're an American, you've been conditioned to be alone as a virtue. And you've now understood over the course of the last however many years that that kind of loneliness is just a recipe for for just perpetual sadness. Now, you can't build the kind of instant family, unquestioning family that you're describing not just in Venezuela, but across the world. You can't build it overnight. But if there's like one thing, just one thing that Americans should do to start building those kinds of connections with each other, like what's one thing somebody can do? Well, I can say what I do. And I think that it's not directly transferable, but it's applicable. Again, I was raised in an assimilated family and I sort of walk the slow walk of becoming more observant and then picking. But as someone who's, who's, you know, not Haredi in any way, I pick certain things because I'm really scared. I have a a true understanding because I've been so close to it. I have a true understanding of, of the responsibility I have as a link in a chain. And I understand that and I carry that with me every, every day. And it influences everything I do. I think, you know, what I put in my mouth, who I socialize with, who I date, whatever it is, like every aspect of my life. And so I made a rule for myself that no matter where I am in this world, I always light Shabbat candles and I always make Kiddush. And it doesn't matter if I'm in Iran, you know, sitting in a hotel room in Tehran and I can't go to shul. Right, you have two rituals. I have two rituals and I abide by them wherever I am, wherever I go, no matter what. When I was in lockdown in Ghana, 
that's what I did. You know, I, I sent someone out <laughs> to get candles. I didn't know where to get it. You know, I do those two things. And I think for families, you have to start there. But rituals can't stand on their own. Bowling will not sustain you for generations. So what you have to do is connect them to faith. You know, the idea that we have to do everything, I gave up 10 years ago because I know that it's enough. Right. I have a goal that my children will have a strong Jewish identity, that they will have a strong Zionist identity. And I picked from sort of the smorgasbord that is amazing Jewish faith and tradition. And I decided that these things I can do and never falter on. And I can promise myself and my children so that they have Jewish memory and that they have sort of faith muscle memory. And that's really important. So I think that that's where I would start. If it's baking challah, if it's whatever applies to your faith, but you have to apply it to something because it gives you comfort. And especially this year, especially in years like these, you know, and we'll, you know, God forbid, we'll probably have other difficult years in our lifetime. And that's the things that I hold on to. And it helps to know that I'm a part of a people. I'm a link in a chain of a people that when it comes to us, we've always seen worse, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I know that I stand on the shoulder of survivors and therefore I have a responsibility not to buckle. And it's only because I know that because I'm aware of that tradition, because I carry that tradition and because I keep it alive in my own home, in my own life, that I can use that strength. And you're a part of something larger. Much larger. Amen to that. <laughs> All right. Okay, so you can follow the incredible, mind-blowing Annika on Twitter at Truth and Fiction. She's totally amazing, as you now all can see. Uh, Annika, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This was a blast. Thank you so much. We Americans live in a place and time of incredible plenty. And it's really tempting for us to just congratulate ourselves on all the good stuff we've built. But peek just beneath the surface, and in the era of COVID, it's not even really beneath the surface anymore. And I think so many of us can see this incredible loneliness at the heart of American life. But what if I told you there's a way to be surrounded by people who love you and care for you and would do anything for you? Would you take it? Of course you would. But in order to get that goodness in your life, it means making that choice to live differently. Maybe not as differently as the Jews of Jerba or Venezuela, but it does mean investing in family, community, tradition, and even faith. It means putting up with other people in your life who, much of the time, are going to really annoy you, but you love them because they're part of your community and your family. And if you're willing to give that a shot, I assure you that you'll have a life that's rich, meaningful, and full of love. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. Thank you.
The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.